Welcome to Sonic Genome, the music history podcast where I subliminally slip in messages about aliens and the deep state that can only be heard when played in reverse. Just kidding. Or maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not. Anyways, I hope everybody enjoys this episode. It's a little more in-depth than our previous ones, but I think the information is super interesting and pertinent because it provides this essential context to music history that is often overlooked. This one's about music mediums and how they influence the industry. Hope you enjoy. The popular music medium of a given decade has always been defined by three criteria. Affordability, sound quality, and convenience. The medium that can achieve the best possible combination of these three criteria will inevitably find its way to the top. Music history, in large part, has been hugely influenced by these competing values. Songs had to have a certain sound, albums had to be a certain length, and mixes had to cater to a certain playback system, all to accompany the medium. Now, though, we live in a time of perfect convenience, where artists can make music on their phones and ship it off to a streaming service for somebody across the world to hear. Artists can make music in whatever style they choose, and if it's good, they'll find an audience. This is, by all accounts, the golden age for music consumers. But how did we get here? That's a good question and a long, long story. So to answer that, we're going to have to take it all the way back to the phono autograph. The phono autograph is this lovely little device patented by Frenchman Leon Scott in 1857 and was the first device to record sound. He used a vibrating diaphragm and stylus to graphically record sound waves as tracings on sheets of paper, but only for visual analysis, he had no intention or way of playing them back. This is the earliest known recording of sound. Scott's phono autograph was relatively insignificant, but marked a key discovery and the first step of a thousand mile journey. Yes, the first real leap in audio playback technology would come in the form of the phonograph, which is not to be confused with the phonoautograph, which is what we just talked about, but it, it's going to get a little confusing, so buckle up, because all of these inventions have phono prefixes or suffixes, because uh, phono means relating to sound, so it makes sense, just a little confusing. Invented in 1877 by Thomas Edison and his team, the original phonograph was a thin sheet of tinfoil wrapped around a hand-cranked, grooved metal cylinder. The phonograph worked similarly to Leon's phonoautograph with a vibrating stylus indenting the tinfoil while the cylinder was rotated. At the time, it was more so a novelty than a revelation because the sound quality was incredibly poor and its practicality was limited at best. We don't know for sure, but it's safe to say it didn't make much of a profit in its first iteration, but it did give Edison the confidence that sound could reliably be recorded and played back eventually. Edison soon moved on to inventing light bulbs, which were a chill invention, but have nothing to do with music, so we're not concerned with that. Ten years later, however, he returns to the invention and replaces the tinfoil sheet with a hollow wax cylinder. The sound quality is greatly improved, and this marked the inception of the recorded sound market around the end of the 1880s. But while Edison was busy improving his phonograph, German inventor Emil Berliner was developing the first laterally cut disc record made of shellac, a resin secreted by the female lac bug, as well as a device that could play it, which he dubbed the gramophone. The earliest discs and gramophones were marketed in 1889, 
And the gramophone is this ridiculous looking thing. It was like a hand crank device with a long windy tube that leads up to a big old horn that projects the sound. The first discs were originally 5 inches in diameter, and they had worse sound quality than Edison's wax cylinders at first, and they could play for less time. So Edison's phonograph understandably dominated the market through the early 1900s. But during that time, the disc had been incrementally improving, gradually increasing in diameter and sound quality until it surpassed the phonograph for good in the 1910s. The first commercial disc pressed was titled Columbia ML 4001 and was a Mendelssohn Violin Concerto in E minor. In the early stages, it was mostly classical music played on these early mediums, followed by jazz and blues in the 20s, which we talk a little bit about in our Mississippi Delta Blues episode, so if that interests you, make my shameless plug worthwhile and check it out. Early recordings were made acoustically, with sound being collected by a horn piped to a diaphragm, which once again vibrates the cutting stylus, creating grooves in the master disc. If you've ever heard somebody refer to mixing and mastering their album, that's where it comes from. The master disc is the final product, and that's what they're doing when they say they're mastering it. They're creating the final product. The frequency range of these early shellac disc records was incredibly poor, and response was irregular, leaving a little more to be desired. But in the 20s, engineers at Western Electric and other independent inventors began developing a technology for capturing audio with what would eventually become to known as a microphone. This innovation resulted in a smoother frequency response, dramatically increasing the quality of the playback, creating a fuller, clearer, and true-to-life sounding record. Softer and distant sounds that were lost in translation before were now being captured, giving records more depth. Western Electric also developed an electric turntable that produced louder and smoother sounds to accompany their new microphone innovations, but the barrier to entry for these electric turntables were way too high and they were very slow to be adopted. The cheapest electric turntable was like $650. For reference, a brand new Model T at the time cost $260 and median household income was approximately 20 bucks a week. So these turntables were really only for the Gatsby's of the world in their first iteration. But the music industry was on the rise nevertheless. Quality was increasing, musicians all over were getting their voices out there until the Great Depression hit in 1929 and did what the Great Depression did so well, ruin everything, including the market for music. In 1932, though, RCA Victor, a record company, introduced an inexpensive turntable called the Duo Junior, which was designed to be connected to radio receivers, thereby reducing the cost. Many people credit this device for reviving a nearly dead music industry. But when World War II hit, then-President FDR called for a 70% cut in the manufacturing of new phonograph records, which consumed about 30% of the nation's shellac. Oof. This was a huge blow to a music industry that was just getting their footing back. There was a call to arms where people were encouraged to donate their broken or unwanted shellac discs, but why? Shellac had tons of military applications, being used in explosives, artillery shell coatings, and signal flares, to name a few. So a new material simply had to be found, one that was abundant and could reliably reduce sound in the same way shellac did, and wasn't used for killing Axis power soldiers with patriotic impunity. Enter polyvinyl chloride. Though it was originally only used out of sudden necessity, polyvinyl chloride ended up being cheaper with drastically better sound quality and strength. It was all around the move. 
Shortly after World War II, Columbia Records produced a disc record that spun at 33 rotations per minute. Uh, at the time, the standard was 78 and was 12 inches wide, nearly doubling the amount of recording you could press on the record. This was dubbed the long play format and would go on to become the disc we know, love, and thrift for. Maybe you've heard somebody refer to an album as an LP, and that's because of the long play format. So the more you know. Disc records began to lose their dominance around the 60s, with compact cassette taking over a significant portion of their market share, which in turn was eventually superseded by the CD. That's all for later, though. However, in the 90s, something strange happened. A growing number of audiophiles began buying discs as collector's items and started calling them vinyls, which honestly surprised me as I was under the impression they had always been relatively popular and had always been called vinyls. So only in the past 30 years have vinyl donned their new nickname and made a resurgence, partly due to their size and collectability, but also because they are considered higher quality than CDs and compact cassettes in cases where artists designed their music specifically to be played on a phonograph disc. Vinyl sales have increased fivefold since the 90s and routinely outperformed CDs. It's great to see that vinyls are seemingly timeless given that they kind of kickstarted the recorded music industry. But why did vinyl stop being the top dog? The short answer is compact cassettes took a serious bite out of their bottom line, but that didn't kill vinyl in and of itself, that was CD. Cassettes actually never passed vinyl in sales. But to truly develop a comprehensive picture for how we arrived at streaming today, we gotta go way back again. In 1935, the first reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, named the Magnetophone, was pushed to market. It was based on the invention of magnetic tape by Fritz Flumer in 1928. Uh, it's weird to think that the technology behind VHS tapes and cassettes had been around since before World War II, albeit fulfilling a more niche role. Yes, these tape recorders were incredibly expensive and required a base of knowledge to operate, so they were mostly used by professionals in radio stations and recording studios in Europe towards the beginning. This technology didn't make its way to America until an American soldier picked one up from a German radio station in 1945 as the Allies marched their way towards Berlin. This soldier would tinker with the technology, improving on it and selling it to the American public. By 1953, one million U.S. homes had tape machines, using them to record their favorite artists on the radios. Though that seems like a large number, consumer use of magnetic tape machines didn't really take off until the 1960s, after the accompanying playback machines reached a comfortable, user-friendly design. It was at this point that reel-to-reel -reel tape became more suitable for household use, but even then it still remained an esoteric product. But then, on August 30th, 1963, the compact cassette is released by the Philips company, along with a host of machines to play and record the cassettes. At first, only blank cassettes were released. You had to record your own music from a radio or copy it from a friend or some other way. Shortly after its release, though, pre-recorded cassettes were developed by the Mercury Record Company. But the early iteration of the system had been designed for dictation, for speaking and the recording of speech, so the audio quality wasn't aptly suited for playing music just yet. However, realizing that the massive market potential for a portable music playing device was huge, manufacturers drastically improved the sound quality of the cassette to the point where it was even better than the large and clunky 8-track tape. 
By 1968, over 2.4 million players had been sold, becoming the dominant form of tape machine by a large margin and in relatively short time compared to its predecessors. Cassette's heyday was relatively short compared to vinyl, but still pretty substantial, and its usage in cars changed the way audio was mixed forever. While most record players played in 2.1, meaning two speakers, the post-war suburban expansion of America meant tons and tons of new cars being driven around, which had as many as four to six speakers. So the need for a mobile playback system was rising rapidly. People wanted the sound of their cassettes to accentuate the immersive aspect of listening to music in a car, so sound engineers had to change their way their audio was mixed, and car manufacturers had to change the way their speakers worked. The result was a more immersive and rich-sounding mix accompanied by speakers that were fine-tuned to accent the sound quality of the cassettes. Cassettes also birthed mixtape culture, giving everyday people the ability to create music compilations by recording off multiple records and the radio, uh, creating for the first time this mixed salad of music that they dubbed the playlist, a concept that is super prevalent in our music listening today, which is pretty cool. Although the birth and growth of the cassette began in the 1960s, its cultural movement took place in the 70s and 80s. Stereo tape decks and boomboxes were highly sought after, and portable pocket recorders and hi-fi players like the iconic Sony Walkman caused its popularity to rapidly balloon. They had 45 minutes of playtime per side, which completely blew vinyl out of the water, which maximum held 44 minutes total. Though vinyl still remained the dominant medium sales-wise due to it being the highest quality sound, cassettes contributed greatly to the cultural zeitgeist of the 70s and 80s due to their simplicity. Some speculate that another key barrier to cassettes taking over was shoplifting. Though their portability was perhaps its defining trait, it also made it easier to stuff in your pockets and bust out the JCPenney's before you got caught. To prevent this, many retailers placed cassettes inside these oversized plastic cases or in locked display cases, which significantly inhibited browsing and therefore sales. But cassettes still remained a big catalyst for social change, even in their reduced state after CDs had begun to phase them out. Their size and ease of copying made them an ideal candidate for smuggling banned music past the Iron Curtain and to the USSR. And it didn't stop there. A cassette culture emerged in developing and oppressive countries like Iran, India, and Chile, where, blacklist, where blacklisted music was able to reach the masses and instill Western ideals of liberalism and freedom of speech into the youth. In South Korea, more and more families have begun teaching their children English at a young age, which creates this continuous demand for English language cassettes due to their affordability. The most powerful modern-day proponent of the cassette that I could find uh, is Thurston Moore of the Sonic Youth, a rock band who I personally hadn't heard of, but they hail from the 80s and 90s. In the early 2000s, well after cassettes and Sonic Youth had been phased out, Thurston said in an interview, I only listen to cassettes. Why? I, I don't know. They're objectively worse quality than CDs and vinyls, and they're not as portable as MP3s, so the only reason he could have done that is simply because it looks alternative as hell. I would imagine he still listens to cassettes to this day. Uh, and Thurston, if you're out there, keep fighting the good fight. Somebody's gotta. Because now it's the 80s and CDs are about to obliterate the cassette into obscurity. Mm -hmm. 